Hello, Connor. Hey, Tom. So, you provided a number of topics. I've thrown in a few topics, and you added one associated with garden updates. So, should we do this out of order? Can we talk about your garden? Can we talk about the seasons changing and the stuff that you're seeing currently in the garden? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd love to open on that. Sort of one big thing to report, which is that nothing has grown for the last four months. And uh, I think in the last day or two, I looked over at the pile that will become our compost. There's green shoots growing out of it from maybe bulbs or something that we threw in there last year. And uh, yeah, so stuff's growing. And uh, the trees are budding out. Spring is on its way. Wonderful. Wonderful. Michelle and I went out for a bike ride today, which was really in preparation for Australia and New Zealand. So we're just trying to get ourselves back into the outside air kind of thing. We haven't had it quite as bad as you've had it in Pittsburgh. We have had some heavy rain, but uh, nothing that was too strange, aside from the fact that we were rear-ended through some of this rain, uh, which apparently is just something that people in the Bay Area have done to them periodically, and it's the nature of the roads. But anyway, so in terms of the garden... What plans do you have in the immediate future? I mean, do you have a space that's ready currently for planting something, or is there still quite a bit to be done? Uh, there's still quite a bit to be done. Uh, so the first thing to do is to build a raised garden bed. We got the lumber for it, I think, at the beginning of winter, but then we haven't quite got the indoor workshop set up, and so we could have sort of taken the tools out onto a, the porch uh, and done like the wood cutting out there, but it was the middle of winter, so that wasn't really a good option either. So we just haven't really worked on it at all. Getting this garden bed set up and then filling it up with dirt. There's a an area at the back of the property that has, I think, a couple of different sets of construction debris kind of in a big mound. And that is going to be the place where the compost ultimately ends up. Uh, and it's going to be sort of cinder blocked off into three different bays, almost like you would see at a landscaping company, except mm. very, very small. And that's so that you can have one compost that is at the beginning of the process and you're still adding scraps to it. One compost that's been turned and is in sort of its second phase uh, and then an empty spot so that you can turn those other two whenever you need to you just use the empty spot as the thing to turn that one into uh, so that way every week you can just keep the whole thing mixed and it cycles really fast i tend to keep things very simple with compost and use it usually well worms are really critical and that's something that i've not necessarily cultivated a neighbor down the street was offering some worms and it gave me an opportunity to have a chat with him as well maybe two large takeaway containers full of worms at the start of last year and started a compost which was just a plastic garbage bin that i cut the bottom off so it could you know touch the soil so to speak and for the past year i've put scraps and a wide variety of organic matter in the compost and had it fill up and yeah i've now moved it over for us it's more associated with just general recycling and getting something back into the environment organic material in a form that's of benefit i rarely use composted material when i'm growing tomatoes or peppers or these kind of things primarily because there are pervasive weeds in the area which you don't want to get into the soil. I mean, when we had actual beds, 
where I put down the black plastic or whatever the membranous material is that enables the stuff to breathe. The weeds attack that continuously to the point where after the second year, I just gave up on the beds and moved to using pots in organized fashion. So soil here is very different and it's also you're constantly under attack by weeds and also there are like noxious i think the chinese elms or some kind of elm that breaks up through the soil on a regular basis so you're constantly you know trying to thwart these various things that are ultimately taking over your beds if you have them established but for me composting is central because i like to increase the soil matter that i have in my environment when we moved here it was pretty bare in terms of general soil and i'm quite thankful that I've added probably at least 20 cubic feet or more worth of soil that has raised certain areas and these kind of things. But that's just through composting and this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's interesting when you feel that you're under attack from certain areas in the garden, but I still maintain a garden with, I don't know whether it's military precision, but I certainly put some precision into the gardening. And unfortunately, because we're going to, we're going overseas, what I would normally start now is usually in the first week of March. This is when I get my seeds planted in my greenhouse, get them ready for, you know, the first cycle of vegetables and these kind of things. And this year I won't have an opportunity to do that until the end of the month, but I'm growing fast fruiting tomatoes in particular, but also pepper plants that I know will generate fruit. And part of that is because when I was recording with Brandon last year, I planned on going to the East Coast for an extended period of time, I still have two events that I have to go to on the East Coast, which will take a couple of weeks out of July, August, maybe August, September. I can't really recall. Anyway, so I'm going to be away through that period of time, and I need a garden that will pack itself up by that period and then start a garden again for November. And these kind of cycles are something I really like about gardening, working out how I can fit my extended plans into a garden. So I look forward to getting your garden updates, primarily because the discoveries that you'll make in the first two or three years in this garden will no doubt inform your further development of the garden. And I look forward to being a somewhat active participant in that, at least a conversive participant. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'll take, take the opportunity now to, to raise a glass with future me, who I'm sure will listen back to this and gloat in some way. So... I know that this will be the year of, of weird mistakes that, that teach me a bunch. I'd allow for maybe three years of that, maybe a lifetime. But yeah, the thing about gardening <laughs> is that it's not a precise thing. You could try to introduce certain elements of precision to it, but really what it is associated with is nurturing luck, really, over a long period of time. And for example, last year, we had the house painted in mid-September. It was actually through the period of time where Attic Aficionados wasn't being recorded. And through that period, I had to move the plants because we had painters coming in around the perimeter of the house and various other areas. So I moved the plants all over to the greenhouse and opened up the sides and what have you. But still, there was an infestation of worms, which basically ate a good portion of some of my tomatoes and you know, decimated some chilies. It did a variety of different bits and pieces of damage through this period of time which, you know, I shook my fist at the painters, but probably I could have tended to the situation a little bit differently. It's one of these things where when you've got infrastructure changes around you, sometimes you panic in the worst possible way. And I certainly found that with the garden last year was I lost mm, a bit, a bit through these worms, 
which continued actually, thankfully I had eradicated them by about October. So by the time I went to on my road trip to Pennsylvania, I had, I was worm free, thankfully, but the weather had also turned. So while I was away, I maintained some chili pepper plants and a few other things in the greenhouse. And when I returned, actually majority of them were still alive and worm free. So it's humbling, very humbling to maintain a garden. Before we got this house, we rented an apartment and, um, we were in that apartment for, I think, seven years. There was a front yard, but the downstairs neighbor, or I guess we were the downstairs neighbor, the upstairs neighbor had dogs, uh, and the dogs used the front yard to pee and chew things and destroy things and hang out, and uh, it was not a place that we could really put a garden in, but we could do tomato plants grown in milk crates full of soil. Mm. Uh, so that was the garden for three or four years was just three milk crates with two plants in them. And that was, it was interesting. Uh, it was kind of hit or miss just because there were so few plants that if, if something went wrong, that was that sort of the end of the project because, you know, all your eggs in one basket, there's only one egg. Uh, I hope nothing bad happens. I had a friend when I lived in Australia who had an apartment with a slightly extended cement deck. And she put out a bathtub and filled it, the full-size bathtub, with organic material. And she had two corn plants in it that, through the period of the summer, sucked the entire bathtub worth of organic material into just these, you know, heads of corn. It's funny when you think about corn in this country because it's so plentiful, but the nutrients that corn requires is actually really quite extreme. And you could do these kind of experiments, which I guess you kind of did with the tomatoes. Tomatoes aren't as depleting of you know material they mainly require water to maintain you know the cellular stuff but watching these corn plants grow and watching the bathtubs just decrease and decrease and decrease until it was almost like mat like roots at the bottom of the bathtub and you know i think i was there when we harvested the corn it was quite a spectacular thing to get a sense of how much nutrients actually went into growing these particular heads of corn yeah, the tomato plants, when we left that apartment, I, I wanted to bring the thing that we ended up building with, with us, uh, but it, it fell apart when we started to try to move it. Uh, but I ended up building, I took a bunch of fencing that someone was throwing out, threw it in the back of my truck, and then brought it back to the apartment and uh, constructed a, a big stand so that uh, these tomatoes could sit up high uh, because there were these big hedges around the front of the apartment that were keeping the sunlight away from the tomatoes. So I was like, ah, these guys need to start high up. But tomatoes actually started as a cliff-dwelling berry that would establish itself at the soil at the top of a cliff and purposefully kind of fall down the cliff and droop down and then have berries out so that the berries would be available to birds but not necessarily ground-dwelling animals. Uh, and then they could spread better and they could establish themselves at parts of cliffs that had bird nests, but not really any other kind of plants. That was their ecological niche. And in that way, oh my God, those tomatoes responded crazily to the very small amount of soil. You know, they only had 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches, just a cubic foot per plant. They turned it into one big sponge and then just poured themselves out over the sides of these milk crates that were, you know, three or four feet up off the ground. It is interesting because certainly there are many schools of thought with how much you should water tomatoes. And it's one of the things where the year that I 
watered more than I would have normally watered, I ended up with amazingly sweet and juicy tomatoes. They weren't flavorless, which was what the threat was from, in particular, my wife's, you know, older friends. They were actually just really sweet and juicy. But I think there's a certain critical, like, watering that one should get. And you're right, it's based on soil size as well. So I now grow tomatoes exclusively in 10-gallon pots. I've tried with 3 gallons and 5 gallons, but they respond so much better for just a little bit more soil. So, you know, 10 gallons is now what I've found the optimum for tomatoes, particularly if you want to have lots of healthy fruit. I mean, I think the smaller pots, the ability to scorch roots and things like that in California weather is very real, which also affected the tomatoes. They become woody and this kind of stuff. But, you know, interesting, interesting stuff, Connor. I think with, with tomatoes especially, I think of them almost as, over time, they're they're like a, a pump that gets better at pumping the more that it pumps, you know. And so the healthiness of the fruits is really dependent on the size of the root structure and its capacity to pull water out of the soil. Certainly. And so sort of before it starts fruiting, denying it water so that it tries to grow more roots deeper into the soil to tap uh, aquifers that are further and further down so that it, it just creates more root structure, I think is usually the strategy I go for with tomatoes. And then as soon as there's three or four sets of fruit growing, then I know that the plant's kind of kicking into fruit growing mode and then i just water the heck out of it uh, especially because usually at about that point the weather is really turning to be like consistently you know sunny all day what fascinates me with tomatoes as well and i hear this with a wide variety of vegetables but tomatoes in particular are so diverse in terms of geography and also growth characteristics so i might have told the story before but when we lived in the uk I came here, well, to Las Vegas specifically, with some tomato seeds and planted them and was able to get tomatoes through the winter months on our window ledge just because the tomatoes in the UK, for this, for them, it was summer, right? <laughs> in terms of the light levels, no other thing. The light level was sufficiently great even in a Las Vegas winter for the plants to think it was summer. I source my heirloom seeds all over the place and I do find that... I can grow completely different kinds of tomatoes that have completely different characteristics, yet mysteriously they're all, they probably all, as you say, originally have the same, you know, parent plant a long, long time ago, as you say, on some craggly rock face. But humans, and humans over a relatively short period of time, have been able to create such a diversity of different kinds of fruits, different kinds of flavors, different kinds of sizes. And I feel the same way about peppers as well. I grow a variety of peppers for similar. And some of the plants look completely different than one another. They've, so of the tomatoes that I grew last year, some had really simple leaves. They weren't traditional tomato leaves where they're complicated and kind of folded in over themselves. They're much broader, simpler leaves and they ripened early with simpler fruit in some regard too. But yeah, it's always interesting growing different kinds of tomatoes just to get a sense of the, diversity that you can get just with one kind of plant yeah i reflect sometimes about one of the nice things about looking at back at civilization is that all of the all of the happenstance has been kind of ironed out because it actually did happen that way uh and and you can look at at 
all of the common foods that we do eat and all the animals that we have domesticated. Uh, and the thing that's similar about almost all of them is that you can breed them with either Punnett squares or animal husbandry, and they respond to that uh, and don't have super strange genotypes that don't produce reliable characteristics in the next generation. All of the creatures that we domesticated do do that. That's why we domesticated them, uh, or why we started growing them agriculturally. <laughs> and then the other thing about them is that all of those creatures and plants, changing one significantly to localize it to a particular region is only ever really about a 20-year project. If it's cows or horses, it's three or four generations. If it's dogs, it's 10 generations. All of the scales at which people could take a, a kind of plant and give it better yield is an economically feasible scale that a, a human could do with resources. It's interesting, actually, the skill set. I periodically consume various YouTube and other media where people talk at length associated with the skill set that's required in terms of, and a lot of it is implicit as well, but some of it is explicitly taught. Certain, you know, ways in which you find fascinating plants that are worth maintaining. I think of the Webby Peppers because they were something that came up in season one this particular podcast these were a chili pepper that was really hard to grow really annoying it took a long time it took three months to get to even a small size pepper plant but the story associated with the peppers actually maintained the peppers in some really curious way and this notion of narrative and i can imagine i mean it's still done to this day i have italian neighbors that talk very highly of their particular tomatoes that they grow each year and the peppers that they grow each year and they don't buy seeds. They have seeds that they, you know, share and this kind of stuff. I mean, all these kind of narrative things, which are beautifully human in every sense, also contribute to how we have such an interesting diversity of plants and, as you note, animals as well. Yeah. So we had a few topics. You wanted to, it was top on your notes. So let us continue on this idea associated with, now I've got to point out, these are, 28 millimeter tall miniatures they're actually as we've talked about with regards to dungeons and dragons and all the other stuff pretty well exactly the same format as those figures except they reference world war ii figures so do you want to start with some narrative introduction or i can i can pick it up yeah oh, i just saw the pictures you posted and um they look great. The sort of trench coats, the, the outer rain jacket, uh, the camouflage rain jackets that they have are just really iconic for me. And, and as soon as I saw them, I was like, oh, yeah, that is spot on. They're uh, just a very recognizable sort of World War II era coat. To background to this, I actually, due to this very podcast, went through, I don't know what it was. I opened up a miniature box which I hadn't opened for probably about 10, maybe even more years at the end of Attic Aficionado season one, because I thought this is going to be a nice concluding video for the podcast. It's going to be Tom opening a miniature box. And when I opened it, I realized that actually I have in my possession things that in gestalt have more wonder than I have probably initially imagined. And I also thoroughly, I mean, we're talking about 15 years ago now, but when I lived in the UK, a part of my social outing was actually talking and communicating with 
miniature painters, both collecting the miniatures in an unpainted form, which I did through eBay and various other mechanisms, and also presenting these miniatures to painters that had particular interests. The main painter who I used was a gentleman by the name of Justin Reed, although he went by Fred Reed, who was an amazing painter, but he also was a polymath. He had served in the British Army through the, I think it was Kosovo conflict. He called himself a skull counter. He'd been shot at. He'd had a variety of different eccentric things happen. And through his life, he'd ended up at Games Workshop for a period of time as a general manager. And then, or I'm not sure what he was. He was like an all regions manager or something like that. And then he just decided to start painting figures because one of the things that he loved doing while he was at Games Workshop was actually mentoring kids to paint miniatures. So some of my miniatures are painted by a fellow called Chris Blair. He is a contemporary of mine and he learned to paint through spending time with Fred Reed. So these characters are kind of larger than life. I commissioned a number of figures with a number of, of painters, but a majority of them went through Fred Reed. And I thought this is a part of my life that I don't have access to. I mean, I've got a pile of miniature boxes, but I don't really have anything. And I've also got, I kind of started collecting the unpainted miniatures again. I'm very interested with the First and Second World War and an accurate representation of the First and Second World War. And part of this is finding miniature manufacturers that do these periods justice and then collecting these miniatures specifically. And these are bare metal miniatures. They're made of pewter. They're not painted at all. And I kind of squirrel them away and I've got a various process. So what I wanted to do was send this crew in San Diego, a typical set of 10 miniatures, which I just bought off Amazon. It wasn't even a specialist range. They're called bolt action, the period of time, their Second World War, 28 millimeter miniatures. Most of them now are plastic. I think I sent metal from memory. I might have sent plastic. I don't know. In any case, my collection is all metal. I have no interest in, in plastic miniatures. So I have a bunch of First World War and Second World War miniatures that I wanted to have painted. The First World War ones I bought into a collection called North Star Great War. That's what the First World War was referred to prior to the Second World War was the Great War. And they are beautiful miniatures, but I bought them probably in 2011 and they were shipped over from the UK. It took about three months for them to arrive. It took an inordinately length of, long length of time. And my thought then was that I would paint them. Now, I have a slight shake in my hand, but I can paint miniatures if I'm given time, or I used to be able to. So I spray-painted them black, and I started doing the coating on these World War One miniatures. And then I just, we moved, I think was what happened. And I packed them away, I pulled them out of storage, and I thought to myself, I've got to get these miniatures clean again. I've got to paint strip them, which I used to do when I was in the UK. Part of the collecting old miniatures was taking old poorly painted miniatures and putting them in paint stripper for a period of time and then cleaning them up and sending them on to these painters. So I thought, well, I could do this. And I found the most noxious paint stripper I could find and started doing this. And I did it for probably about four weeks of, you know, weekends cleaning these miniatures with paint stripper. And then I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. Like I'm spending way too much time doing this thing. I'm fumigating myself in the house. The paint stripper is just horrible and it's noxious and I'm coming into contact with it continuously. So I then went back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer is still selling them. It's not selling the same range that I purchased from. It's selling a subset of it, which kind of irritates me a little bit. But I've got new miniatures. And now, unlike previously, where it would take three months, 
They can turn up within about seven days. This is one of the benefits of the Amazon world, right? <laughs> Amazon has revolutionized the way even the most eclectic, tiny little companies operate in the UK. So I contacted a company called Frontline Gaming. They're based in San Diego. I was looking for a US-based miniature painter. I've also approached and sent figures to three European figure painters, individuals, not a company. And they are artists in the full meaning of the word. They take their own time. They have romantic relationship breakups that seem to take inordinate amounts of time away from their painting. So them, they are working at their own time frame. But the San Diego guys got back to me this week with the... They were Waffen SS, for folks listening in, which are the, I guess, elite military German units that are... It's very difficult talking about the Second World War and the First World War and these things, so it's probably better that I just dive into this. But I'll say that they're very particular military figures, and the fellow who painted them made a few minor mistakes. The first mistakes that he made, for me, which are the most obvious, is they come with separate heads, and he put the heads on the wrong bodies. So the figures aren't historically accurate or some of them aren't because they don't have the right heads on the bodies but what you say associated with the camouflage and the tunics and these kind of things is so iconographic and that's really the way that i like this painter there are various minor issues the hands and the transition to the guns are not particularly well painted the guns themselves have been dry brushed so it's just black with a dry brushing of silver which isn't really for the amount that i'm paying what i would anticipate i would anticipate probably a metal underlying silver and then a wash of some description, which gives a kind of more blued finish with regards to the firearms. But these things technically normally would be used to play games. So the figures that I sent to the Waffen SS are used to play a game called Bolt Action, which is a Second World War game with these. It's very similar to Warhammer or Warhammer 40,000, except it's themed in the Second World War. But I have a very interesting perspective with regards to these conflicts, the First World War and the Second World War in particular, because as a boy growing up, I would go to the War Memorial in Australia, in Canberra, Australia, where I grew up, and I would walk around the exhibit halls on not necessarily every weekend, but in a typical month, I would go probably two or three times. Um, we talked a little bit about religion and fish fries and these kind of things last recording. For me, military and military history is is the closest thing to a religion that I continue to practice. It's something that I maintain and it gives me a, what people actually associate with religion in general sense. It gives me a sense of peace. It gives me a sense of, you know, welcomed knowledge and these kind of things. But for me, the First World War is about a ruling elite that controlled Europe that decided rather than modernize or allow social revolution to take place as what happened in russia it was easier to throw millions and millions of young men against each other in weaponized now the u.s has the civil war the civil war showed weaponry which hadn't been used before in particular cartridge rifles and these kind of things so the u.s already had a bit of a history of this kind of warfare but europe really hadn't seen the kind of brutality that the First World War provided, and gassing, mortaring, just really, really horrible experiences, horrible means of warfare, with groups of men on either side that were just being thrown against each other to be killed by a completely disconnected ruling elite. People talk about Franz Ferdinand and all this kind of stuff. That's nonsense. That's a 
modern history that's constructed after the fact to try to explain things. What actually occurred, which, once you say it out loud, makes the Franz Ferdinand thing nonsensical, is that the ruling elites decided to create war, to throw young men at each other, and they did this because they were in fear of what has happened, or what happened in the Soviet Union specifically, but also what was happening in the UK and a variety of other countries, that the labour mobilisation and also the fact that working people were earning more and living better than they had lived historically. The turnaround of the Industrial Revolution, which really happened at the start of the 20th century, was that people could start earning reasonable incomes and not dying at, you know, 30, right? So through these mechanizations, through the machine, strangely, humans were actually improving their lot in life more than they had through serfdom or any royalty or these kind of things. So after the First World War, the, you know, victors did a wide variety of things, but most of it was associated with completely, they did horrible things, right, to Germany. And in large part, this created the Second World War, but it was a completely different war. The Second World War was on scales that the First World War seemed, you know, tiny compared to the Second World War. And also the nature of machines and in terms of human intelligence, this is a very strange way to actually look at warfare, but the evolutions of technology through the Second World War are really hard to imagine in modern day terms. The amount of technology that was brought to bear as a means of you know trying to beat this thing the cold war period was interesting but there was no actual explicit conflicts through the cold war period aside from the proxy wars like vietnam and afghanistan and this kind of stuff the second world war required so for example literally at arm's length i have two pieces of sten guns these are guns that are welded together with bolts simple bolts that you would buy at Home Depot. The whole nature that there was an internal defence force within the UK, England specifically, that where people with small workshops made vast quantities of firearms in order to send over to, you know, France and also use internally. I mean, the kinds of mechanisation that scale that you see with tanks and this kind of stuff is one thing. Individual people in their sheds did things to assist with the war effort. And obviously there was a vast quantity of resource reallocation, a bunch of other things that went on. But the kind of brilliance that you see through the Second World War is difficult to really understand in a modern context. Also what's difficult to understand is associated with the rise of the Nazi state. Now, it's very fashionable to use the term Nazi currently because people can't seem to say neo-Nazi. But I would thoroughly recommend if people are looking to study this thing, how Nazi Germany came together, and I'm reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich currently, so I'm already in that mindset. I would say that if you have Netflix, Hitler's Circle of Evil is not as good as The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich in any necessary sense, it's a bit you know, soap opera-esque, but it does at least portray a number of the characters that created this thing associated with Nazism. And what I find particularly fascinating as well is that the modern narrative associated with Nazism says that kids in, you know, North Carolina holding tiki torches are Nazis. Actually, the Nazi intelligentsia, the folks that created the technology behind 
the Nazi state in terms of economics, in terms of propaganda, in terms of, you know, military. If you look at just Werner von Braun, who basically founded NASA and moon, you know, moon exploration, all this kind of stuff, he was the card carrying Nazi. He, you know, as is evident through a variety of accounts, used human slaves to build his rockets and these kind of things when he was in the Nazi state. So the US as an amalgamation of a variety of different ideas and also the role of financiers and the propagandists and the propagation of this set of ideas and technology into the modern day American state is a very interesting way to make the Second World War still very relevant. If the general public, if the everyday folk in this country had a deeper understanding of the Second World War just in terms of conflict, I I come to this from a perspective of not necessarily pacifism, but just looking at wars as being really futile and ultimately disproportionately destructive efforts. And I think the history of these things and understanding how these things fitted together as not to trivialize them, as not to use them associated with, oh, look, those kids in, you know, with their tiki torches are Nazis. No. Nazis are a very specific thing that existed in history in a very specific historical context. Any idiot who wants to put up a swastika on their wall can be a neo-Nazi, but it's very different than what actually happened through the Nazi state. So these figures for me, I don't play games with them. They're more a means of like a line in the sand, perhaps associated with my early childhood, perhaps walking around the Australian War Memorial. But it just gives a veneration or a kind of understanding associated with the importance of these historical conflicts. And also the fact that hopefully generations in the future, maybe at some flea market or some other thing, when they see these tiny little soldiers painted in the future, will think well maybe i want to learn a little bit more about this period of time in history like why are the soldiers in mud what does that mean you know so that's my little wrap associated with the importance of the first world war and the second world war in terms of things to study and why i create these commissions and these kind of things that part of my own psychological uh malcontentness i guess you have a series of questions associated with the figures i might have just overwhelmed any nature of questions what are your thoughts associated with the figures specifically before the figures i was just gonna say i was reminded of my high school american history teacher i had the benefit of being one of the last couple of classes that he taught because he retired a couple years later Uh, but he had actually grown up in the 40s and he remembered the war and so he was able to actually provide personal narratives about his mom who was at home on the home front and his dad who went off and fought in class. And so everyone took that class incredibly seriously because, you know, he had lived through it. He could talk about it directly. He remembered it from primary experience. He was able to speak about it eloquently. We were some of the last classes to go through that high school that I think were attached to that war in that way. You know, I had a French teacher who, was in the disputed area. I guess it's probably would have been called the Rhineland. I'm not really sure. I guess she affiliated with Germany. So she was in the Rhineland when it was not German, then when the Germans came in, and obviously through defeat afterwards. I think the psychology of 
being in the invaded area is really fascinating for me. And it's one of the things that I think about with regards to Operation Sea Line, which was the mythical plot to invade the UK. I read about Operation Sea Line, as one does when one exhausts all other Second World War resources. And it's actually really fascinating, the psychology of being invaded. And certainly the folks that I know, the French folk that I know in particular, who may not have lived through it, but their parents certainly lived through it. And that psychology of being completely powerless, and also if you see the quality of propaganda, the Eye of Vichy, which is film reels from Vichy, France, when the French were invaded by the Germans, and kind of film reels that they put up in the cinemas, just gives you a really keen sense that what we see today associated with propaganda has its origins in a part of the world that probably should be studied and understood. And I do appreciate the nature of people that fought in the Second World War. And also, actually, when I lived in the UK, my neighbour had been a merchant mariner. So, you know, had all the U-boat experiences of potentially being torpedoed and surviving that. I mean, I can't imagine the bravery that the unarmed folk as well as the armed folk undertook, but the notion of being somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean chipping goods of some description across to the, you know, English folk with the threat of U-boats. All astonishing, astonishing stuff. The parts of the ocean that that are so far out where when your boat gets hit, you say, oh, God, where, where's the closest land? And the, the guy next to you says, oh, it's two miles straight down, man. Das Boat is a good film. I always like sources that are close, to, as you say, with your teacher, the best sources are really close to the conflict, and some of my favourite war movies are made by Germans, and they have nuances and understanding that you don't get, unfortunately, in Saving Private Ryan. Like, it really is very much the psychology of the defeated is very important. And ultimately, it's interesting with the whole Vietnam War thing, because there are so many films associated with the Vietnam War that show categorical defeat, and yet the current narrative associated with vietnam is that the u.s left head held high i'm not sure how they actually resolve that with film but it's interesting to see conflicts being rewritten and ultimately this is what's happening with the second world war as well it's very interesting if you read the contemporary historians literature particularly the notion that germany and hitler as an individual were railroaded into the circumstances that occurred that there wasn't acts of deception and these kind of things it's very interesting the modern rewrite of certain parts of history. And, yeah, it's all very curious. I guess historians need to have jobs too, right? If you're a Second World War historian, you need to have a job for life and you need to start creating these strange things. But oh, yeah. and, and your book titles need to uh, need to have three parts, right? Sort of a, a bold title and then the history of Category 1, Category 2, Category 3. Hmm. Uh, and then it's a real, real history book. Apparently um, so. Tom, I have to confess that I don't actually know what Australia's role was in either the First or Second World War. Oh, well, um, allow that me is a to... total blind spot that that, uh, that that is my America-centric or USA-centric blindness here. So okay. please so enlighten me. There's a national holiday called Anzac Day. Winston Churchill, prior to being Winston Churchill, was the commander of the Admiralty, and also he had... Even prior to being, I think, commander of the Admiralty, let me get this right. Anyway, 
He was responsible for sending Australians to their deaths on the Turkish rocky coast. Imagine what D-Day would have been like if it didn't have a beachhead and it was just rocks leading up. He basically sent Australians into that environment. ANZAC stands for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. So there were New Zealanders there as well. There were a few Indians and various other folk too. But Australians have always been used as cannon fodder. They're kind of, we were talking about Cub Scouts. That's very much the kind of Australian philosophy as well. Send in the Australians when you need to, you know, clear out minefields and this kind of stuff. Australia's military history is so intertwined with the UK and with America. And what I find fascinating is that the Australian War Memorial has done a complete historical rewrite associated with, we will now only talk about conflicts that involved Australia and Australians, which means you can't really talk about Nazi Germany particularly coherently. There were a few Australians that were in the UK and did participate in certain things but um, like pilots for example but Australia's contribution to the Second World War came through the Pacific and the Pacific was a primary theater for Australia obviously when Singapore gets invaded by the Japanese it's pretty close to home so Australia participated in a lot of the jungle fighting the Kokoda Trail directly in conflict with the Japanese and usually in a supportive role to the US. The role of Australia in the First World War was piecemeal, but Australia, I think, did participate in some of the North African warfare. Again, my grandfather was in the Second World War. He participated in North Africa, but as part of the British Eighth Army. So his military service was coming up through what is now Libya and these areas up through... Uh, Egypt and mm-hmm. into you know Sicily and then up into Italy and then further north. So yeah, my my grandfather was actually also in North Africa. He was working for the International News Service in Tobruk, and so he was stationed with uh, the British there. Came back from the war physically unscathed, but uh, what I guess later. They call it a different thing every war, right? But PTSD mm-hmm. in World War Two, it was shell shock, I mm-hmm. think, or battle fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These conflicts for me are so many photographs, so much visual. You need to appreciate that these each theater was covered by a separate museum-sized piece. The Australian War Memorial, when I was growing up, was absolutely amazing. It's now removed all of the physical artifacts in large part because i think the physical artifacts deteriorate over time but when i was a boy we would go and see full-size mannequins in the case of the germans who were physically larger than the british in the full you know wearing the fatigues and what have you wearing their military uniforms with rifles in the case of vietnam the area that was opened up for it had Viet Cong, real Viet Cong weapons, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you felt immersed in it. And even though it was behind glass, you could smell the gun oil. You could smell the fabric with the SS. You could smell the leather, which permeated through. And certainly people that were in the Second World War talk about the fact that they could smell the Germans before they could see them because they had this, you know, polished leather and this kind of stuff. So my sensorial and just general mind state associated with these conflicts are very real. Now, the Great War, the First World War, is the 
only war that has not yet been or hadn't been molested um, in the War Memorial. And I spent many hours wandering through that in particular because that was the only thing that was left. The Second World War stuff is just a national disgrace. And I have written countless letters to the War Memorial in Australia saying that you are damaging multiple generations of, of children if you put up this stuff. They have the Holocaust on a, a like literally a three by two inch card. And the whole reductionism and also the nature of we're only covering wars that Australians participated in and we're only covering the Australian participation in these wars. This is like, okay, how do you explain the Second World War coherently if you're only going to talk about the Australian participation in the Second World War? It's completely and utterly nonsensical. Whereas historically, you would see full-sized mannequins with the weapons. You know, you'd get a sense of the size. You'd get a sense of the brutality. You had an opportunity to see the tanks and these kind of things, and you could smell them, and you had a really meaningful sense that this wasn't just something that happened in the past. This existed very much in terms of the psychology and these kind of things in the present. Now, I do understand war trauma. I do understand all these things, in particular how it's carried through generations of children, all these kind of things. I, you know, my father was always told that the Nazis were coming back, that they were going to be, you know, in his room at night. He had to keep in the forefront of his head that these people had permeated his existence even prior to his birth. My father was born in 1946. And ironically, actually, I was born from the Vietnam War through similar things in terms of how my parents met. His parents, although they knew each other prior to the war, the war cemented them getting married and having children. My grandfather's truck he called irene which is my grandmother's name so you know all these connections associated with war psychology but yeah it's a funny thing because i don't think it has any degree of reverence anymore i don't think people really care and you know our news media every aspect of how information is propagated now makes this not even a taboo topic it's not even a topic like when the kids started marching with their tiki torches no one actually thought maybe Nazi is not the correct term for what they're doing. It's just like, oh yeah, they're the Nazis. Yeah. It's just very, yeah, but they're also me. like cosplayers, right? They like yeah. know that they're putting on the performance of being a Nazi or a neo-Nazi. It strikes me that access to primary source materials, uh, is really important for understanding both of those conflicts in high school. I had to read the whole class. Everybody had to read The Diary of Anne Frank, I think, in junior year. And in senior year, we all had to read Night, the Elie Wiesel book. We were encouraged. There were many other autobiographies and biographies of people in that time and books of letters that were in the library. Uh, and so I think that, that, at least for me, going through California public high school, those wars were the voices of the people who had gone through those experiences were something that I had available to me. And I don't know how prevalent that is now, though I wonder how much, how much I guess museums have moved onto YouTube, mm. right? Like how much the experience of going to a museum has been replaced with the experience of having a tablet. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the. The sensorial things that impacted me through my childhood, the smell of gun oil, the size of the men in their uniforms, the size of a tank compared to me, the size of a, a bomber compared to me, the size of all these things and the concept that these had been used against 
you know, not my parents, but certainly my grandparents. I think the finding these things in books and these kind of things is not in it's it's equivalent i think to youtube maybe even more degrading in some regard than youtube my own experience with this has been doing genealogical research and actually finding a great aunt of mine that who died in in dakar and finding actually her death record because the germans kept records of everything and no one in my family had actually done that previously i did that through a series of what are now public searches but also like a lot of information and like fractional photographs and these kind of things. And the notion that these people had hauntingly stared out at me through my entire life. They were just photos in a photo album that we had no primary connection with. And then going through all the records and the DNA and all this other stuff. And, you know, this is the civil war in this country. The US is still, I mean, it's ironic that the guys with tiki torches are probably closer connected to the civil war in some regard. But in that setting, the Civil War also, you talk to people in their, you know, 70s and 80s, particularly folks that come from the South, the Civil War had exactly the same permeations, well, not exactly the same, but created the same kind of psychology for a long period of time. And now it's very obvious that the Civil War doesn't exist in the way that it existed for people in the 40s and 50s, where there was still a small crop of very elderly men who had been in their early teens when they had joined up and these kind of things. So it's interesting the way that each generation loses some war memory and gains some more war memory. And one of the things that really upsets me about going back to the Australian War Memorial is that there are now all these other wars, right? <laughs> we didn't learn from the first few. We got a whole bunch of additional stuff. And the difference is that I now see this through a culture of fascism, which is a word that I think one can probably use in certain circumstances, a nationalism, which one can certainly use. And now what had been the greatest peace monument in my early childhood is a way of describing how these contemporary wars are all right, you know, gee, we're doing good things here, as opposed to just contributing to violence and psychological turmoil that permeates cultures for generations so i don't know it's always curious yeah i'm thinking back to to how i accumulated knowledge about the first world war and the second world war and vietnam as well it was during high school and then during summers during college when i was going back home for the summer so i had access to a vehicle gas was pretty cheap i didn't have very much money but I had sort of like a book, a used bookstore slush fund. Mm -hmm. I had enough science fiction books that I had read when I was 12 and had no interest in reading now that I was 18 or 19 that I could get store credit at a used bookstore and acquire new books that were current interests. And so there were, oh, four or five bookstores that I would go to. And I think at the time I must've been reading probably a book a day. I just had a lot of free time and I wanted to know everything. Uh, and so I think for, for world war one and world war two in Vietnam, it was really the Osprey publishing mm -hmm. sort of 72 page, uh, softbound books on all kinds of different military topics that I think were my, my big introductions into those different conflicts. And I think the more specific they were, the better. I didn't really, it was hard for me to grab the, um, 
the sort of overview ones. If there was one that was just about battlefield medicine or just about the use of tanks on this particular front uh, or just about uh, this particular battle, that was, I guess, just enough enough of a bite of information that I could absorb it without too much trouble. Osprey is just such a fascinating resource. I remember when I was a young boy first getting exposed to Osprey and I always thought, this is too brief. This isn't, you know, this is like made for military modelers or something like that. And it's only through later life, maybe modernity, like moving into the modern age that I realized that Osprey has now created such an amazing resource for folks that, I mean, I will typically take, you know, two or three Osprey books off the shelf and that's my evening. Like I can remind myself associated with things. Their better books are really good. Their bad books are just atrocious. I mean, they have a full spectrum. So I wouldn't say all Osprey is great, but I'd say as a thing in general, they're pretty good. And if you have limited time, they are a wonderful way to start immersing yourself in aspects of history, which I think through the longer form books, the, you know, deep things associated with, you know, deep dives are always good. But Osprey, for people that are curious, <laughs> historically curious, they provide a remarkable outlet. So I too am a, a similar Osprey aficionado. Before the Osprey books, when I was younger, there were, there were picture books that I think were meant for 12 or 13 year olds. I guess they were sort of infographic books uh, or a book that was just 32 different infographics. Some of them were military themed and some of them, I remember ones that just had an entire page that was um, tanks all to scale on a graph and then uh, little paragraphs about each tank, but you could see the relative sizes uh, and all of the different weapons were laid, weapons platforms were labeled. And I think those books also tended to have a lot of cross sections mm -hmm. uh, and plan diagrams. Uh, and I remember some of them. Oh, I can distinctly remember like a plan diagram of an Archimedes screw. So certainly, I think those books must have had a component to them that was just. Let's tell you about all of the ancient Greek mechanical inventions that that happened way in the way back that, that we just use now. You need to know about these. It's important to note the role in my life, although I didn't have a lot of them, I had probably a dozen plastic models. I had a Panzer three, I think maybe a Panzer four. I had a German officer on horseback. I had obviously a Spitfire. I don't think I had a Messerschmitt. I had a... Long range desert group Jeep, I think it was probably a Dodge actually, or I looked it up actually recently. But you know, all these beautiful iconographic plastic models that I assembled, some of which I painted. I remember I was having my toe removed, so I must have been about 10. And I had a Panzer IV that I had built and the smell of the rubber on the threads, these kind of things. I brought the tank into hospital with me and put it beside my bed. It's like something that was reassuring me that this German tank was going to be there protecting me in this hospital experience when I <laughs> cut off a toe. So, you know, all these crazy things were cemented, for want of a better term, with plastic cement early on. And, yeah, the building of planes, and I still belong, I don't do it as a hobby, but I still belong to a wide variety of Facebook groups of people that continue this thing on, that primarily build planes or tanks or other plastic models and what i found fascinating 
is that this is a thing that is maintained typically by older gentlemen, certainly gentlemen much older than I am, but they are constantly trying to bring in their children and their grandchildren to carry on this tradition. I think plastic models of, you know, things from the Second World War and very occasionally things from the First World War really permeated my general consciousness as well. And the dimensions, as you say, the, the space, the size, the sense of these things to scale. I remember when I went back to the War Memorial in 2009, having spent 10 years out of Australia, I went up to the smallest possible combat tank, which is tiny in these representations, and it is still really scary. Like, it is still huge, and you can imagine the tracks going and the general rumbling that it must have made. Even the smallest possible tank is still a really scary thing. That is certainly something that still in my general psychology as well. Did, did plastic models play a role in your life? Did you assemble tanks or planes or anything like that? Yeah, I had a couple of snap-together kits. Uh, I remember having a lot of trouble with the decals because mm-hmm. they, were, um, they, they, they were the kind that you had to soak in water and then apply. And I just, I didn't have, I've never had a steady hand. Uh, and that was always kind of my downfall with trying to apply even pressure across the decal. Just seven-year-old Connor could not do that at all. Yeah, I seem I, I made a tank, I made a plane. I had a lot more uh I guess fantastical toys and then Legos. I went big on Legos, building things, so connects and um there's a metal one that I mostly remember how much it cut my hands up more than I remember anything I actually built with it. But it's actually made out of pressed out steel pieces and real screws and nuts that you and washers that you put together, um, and you can build cranes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I had just a couple of, of military figures. Uh, I I did sign up for like a mailing, a monthly mailing club where for a dollar a month they mailed a a fact sheet about an airplane, uh, like a jet fighter, every month. And you put it in a special binder that they mailed you when you signed up for it. And I think I was signed up for that for about a year and then said, I don't really know why I have this binder that has exactly 12 different airplanes in it. This was a dumb, I don't know why they did this. This was a terrible, terrible thing to sign up for. What is this? Yes. Connor, it has been a pleasure as always. I am going to be away. I'm going to the season one, at least, Attic Aficionado's spiritual home of Adelaide amongst other places in my journeys. So I've got a bit of travel to do in the next few weeks, but I look forward when I get back to resuming the recording schedule and no doubt we'll have more topics to discuss. It's been a pleasure as always, Connor. Cool. Have a good night and uh, safe travels. Talk to you soon. Take care.